Welcome to Neighborhood Comics Convo. My name is Lee and I'm your host and co-owner of local comic shop Neighborhood Comics in Savannah, Georgia. This is our first proper episode of the podcast and I'm thankful that you've decided to join us. On January 6, 2021, we talked with artist Josh Hood over video chat. It was an eventful day in the world, but we tried our best to keep it to comic books. Josh is a longtime friend of the store and a fantastic human being. His creator-owned book, We Can Never Go Home, is a great pickup, and you've undoubtedly seen his work for Marvel, DC, and IDW over the years. His latest work is the Avatar miniseries for Dark Horse. If you're the video-watching type, you can watch this episode in full on our Facebook or YouTube channels. Thanks as always for listening. Be sure to follow us at NBRHDComics on all social media platforms and subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. If you'd like to support the show, the easiest way to do that is by buying something. Stop in at our shop at 1205 Bull Street in Savannah or shop online at NeighborhoodComics.com. We ship worldwide. Without further ado, here's our chat with comic book artist Josh Hood. Maybe that's better. Hi there. Welcome to Neighborhood Comics. My name is Lee. I am one of the owners here at Neighborhood Comics in Savannah, Georgia. Thanks for joining us today. We are really excited to talk comics. It's a crazy day in America. Uh, I feel like I could have said that any day over the last few years, but it's especially crazy today. But for the next little bit, we're going to be talking about some fun stuff. We're going to be talking about comic books. That's what we do here. That's what we love. And over the next couple of months here at the beginning of 2021, we are going to have a number of different creators join us for these weekly conversations. Uh, we've got a great lineup. You can check out the full schedule over at our website, neighborhoodcomics.com. We'll be talking about everything from smaller creator-owned titles all the way through big books like Spider-Man and the like. So I hope that no matter what type of comics that you enjoy, that you'll join us, learn about something new maybe, learn a little bit more about the process, and celebrate these amazing creators and what they do. Our first guest is going to be a man who I have had the privilege of knowing for several years outside of actual the, the comic book world, uh, but that is probably what he is best known for. Josh Hood is an artist and illustrator who has worked on a number of high-profile projects from the major companies that you all know and love, and also has uh, been at the helm of creator-owned project as well. Today, we are here to talk to Josh about his new book for Dark Horse Comics. He is taking over the art duties on Avatar, The Next Shadow. This is a brand new miniseries that continues the lore of the world in James Cameron's Avatar universe. And uh, we're going to welcome him right here. Let's see, we're going to count down three, two, one. There's Josh. How's it going? Hey, man. Thanks for joining us today. I hope you're doing well. I mean, as well as anybody could do. <laughs> now, are you joining us from Atlanta tonight? I am. I'm in uh, Mableton, which is about 11 miles um, west of downtown. 
Awesome. You are close enough that I like to claim you as, as one of our local artists and you've spent a lot of time in Savannah. So I, I would claim you anyway, no matter where you lived, but thanks for joining me over video today. Uh, with COVID, we're not having a whole lot of events in the shop. So mm. this creator interview series is a way for us to kind of bring some of that flavor back in where we're used to having people come in and do signings and give Q&A sessions and, and let people know about the cool work that they're doing. So now that I've got you, Josh, I'm going to do the whole 20 questions thing. And I'm really going to pin you to the wall with some really tough business here. Like uh, my It's about time somebody did. <laughs> what did you first... Uh, come in contact with the world of comic books. What was oh, the first want... book for you that I want to dig deep? I want to go way back in your way. You wanted back. to make me cry right off the bat, huh, Barbara and Walters? I, I see where you're going with this. Yeah, yeah. Um, when I was a little boy, my father came home one day with two comic books. One was an old issue of Daredevil with a, this beautiful John Byrne cover. And the other one was an issue of Dazzler. And he bought that for my sister and he bought the Daredevil for me. And I ended up with both of them. <laughs> and what was that like? Do you have a concept of, of like superheroes or of like what the world of comic book was? How, how old were you when those got in your hands? This would have been, I, I would have been maybe nine, yeah, eight or nine. So, <clears throat> so the perfect age for that like kind of thing. On, uh, Saturday morning cartoons or, you know, you were... Oh, sure. It had been, um, for me, it had been like uh, the Super Friends and uh, Thundar the Barbarian and that sort of thing. And toys, a lot of toys and weirdly some Japanese imports like Shogun Warriors and, you know, not like not like normally action figure stuff. Yeah, that's interesting. The Shogun Warriors had a, a really interesting foothold in the U.S. for a really small moment that made a really big impact on a lot of people who grew up to be fans of of kaiju and mechs and, and all that cool yeah. world of stuff so that's cool that that kind of came into your orbit yeah those super robo things i mean now i'll <laughs> i've paid like two hundred dollars to try to find uh, you know to get some of those back uh where in the day what do they cost like 7.99 maybe that's what we do when we uh, get a little bit of money in our pocket. We chase that nostalgia and that thrill of that thing that made us feel so good when we were. It was totally kids. worth it. It was one hundred percent worth it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, you know, you're talking to a guy who collects toys too, Josh. So we're we're all good. We're all friends here. Okay. okay. <laughs> so you had that Daredevil book. You had that Dazzler book. Did you have a local comic book store? Where would you go to get your books? No, uh, not for years and years and years. Uh, for me, it was all gas stations, grocery stores. Um, my my great aunt worked at a uh, drugstore in Cartersville, Georgia, and he had a spinner rack. And he would only buy new comics when the rack started to empty out. Yeah. So I would have to go in there and buy like, you know, uh, Archie comics and uh, what's the little little devil? I can't even remember what oh, character yeah, yeah, that yeah. is. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The little yeah, the little red guy with the little pitchfork and uh, yeah. it was also a, a Harvey or Archie title. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, That's exactly what you're talking about. So to get a new issue of Thor or Batman, I'd have to buy comics. I just literally did not care about, but fortunately they were pretty cheap at the time. You know, <laughs> sixty sixty cents I think was the going rate. 
us Bronze Age babies. That's what we were able to. <laughs> we had a little bit of window for the the copper books jumped us up to a dollar twenty five and. Oh, it was all of a sudden. Yeah, it was I like, a, do I have lunch, or do I buy a Walt Simons and Thor? I had a very similar. My experience was very similar to that. Small town uh, Georgia. Uh, you know, popping over to the drugstore and whatever they had on the shelf. And I'm sure it was one of those situations where they, you know, tore the covers off and sent them back out of the back door every, every couple of months. But I couldn't follow a series. It was impossible. And, yeah. you know, you'd pick up a, a Superman, a Man of Steel 23, and you would never, never see the next issue of that. And Nope. Yeah. And no. my town forbid if you were trying to find a Marvel book, you know, they, they weren't there. They didn't really? Exist. Marvel? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It Marvel was, didn't uh, have penetration. The weird, the weird little local shops were DC books and were, you know, like your Archie, like your family friendly kind of stuff, um, mm -hmm. which... Looking at some of those Archies now, I'm not sure how family friendly they all were, but that's just my adult mind bleeding into all that good stuff. Well, when did you find, uh, where was it that you found your first comic book shop or your first regular shop? It was in Macon, Georgia. It was a place called the Comics Castle, I think, yeah. spelled with two Ks, which is, you know, for Macon, that might mean something. I'm not sure. Oh, no. Um Comics Castle. That's what I think that's what it was called. And I walked in and had, you know, all I had had up to that point was like the book, the magazine rack next to the counter and an Exxon station was like my main source of Hulk and Thor. And that's what I had been collecting just because they were getting those every month. I walked into this store and lost my mind. <laughs> there were crazy black and white issues you opened them up and they just stunk of ink and newsprint and you know copy after copy after copy of x-men which you just couldn't get and, and about how yeah, old were you at that point i would have been 13 maybe yeah that's prime discovering your comic book shop and, yeah. and especially for someone who was looking for books like x-men you know that's such a great uh, that era of X-Men 2, such a great young person's book where you're dealing with these intergalactic threats, but you're also, you know, edgy and you don't fit in and, you know, papers and books have been written on on how the X-Men relate to across uh, the spectrum uh, of everybody. Uh, so that's that's not surprising that that's that's one I could see you being drawn to. But Speaking of being drawn to, as you were getting these books, as you were young, as you were exploring this, finding this whole bigger world now that you know that there are independent books out there, smaller publishers, some of the, the not mainstream stuff, at what point did you find yourself drawing, you know, in that style or thinking about drawing in a comic book mindset? Yeah, I had already been doing it, even though I hadn't owned a comic yet, I had already been doing it. Um, drawing what I had seen, you know, like super friends kind of yep. stuff. Drawn a lot of drawn a lot of Batman, drawn a lot of Superman. Um when the Transformers came on television, that was a big one for me. Yeah. I'd spent a lot of time drawing robots fighting each other. And I wish I would give anything to be able to find some of those images, you know, and see what they you know, what I thought uh, they looked like then and what I think what I would think of them now. Yeah. Um, I think that's true because as kids, we do fill in so many of those blanks. And I personally, I've, I've got all these drawings from like after I saw the Star Wars movies as a kid and, you know, I couldn't go home and watch it. 
So I was drawing to try to remember what the robots looked like when I got home. And yeah, you, you I can dig to, that. I've got a couple of those and you look at them and no, I, I'm hard pressed to determine who those robots are <laughs> after seeing them this many times. But yeah, no, that's, that's great. So I guess probably your other influence may have been, you know, like for a lot of us who didn't have access to comics, you know, you're kind of newspaper strips too. Were you, were you kind of visualizing panels at that point too? Or was it not that way? No, not at all. No, um, I didn't really start paying attention to newspaper strips until later after I had started to get like a steady supply of comics in. So, I mean, my, my early drawings were never sort of sequential. They were, it was always a one image sort of thing and then throw it in a closet, one image sort of thing. And by the end, the reason I don't have any of these is because I would have just stacks and stacks and stacks, reams of lined paper filled. I can remember in the fifth grade, my teacher, Mrs. Fields, Shout out Mrs. Fields. Yeah, shout out Mrs. Fields. She, uh, she, you know, I'm half taking notes and half mostly drawing. I'm mostly drawing. She just takes my pencil and my and my pad away from me, and I'm just sitting there with, like twiddling my thumbs and wouldn't give it back. I was so angry. <laughs> Take back that shout out to Mrs. Fields. I'm so sorry that happened to you, Josh. You'll never make a living at this. She well, wasn't the last you're so great at this. So you're, you've been drawing, you've been reading, you've been picking stuff up. At what point did you start to put those things together and think, whoa, this is somebody's job. Somebody gets paid to, to draw these cool stories and that's what they do. Yeah. It wasn't until I started to um, recognize individual styles. Mm -hmm. It probably started with John Byrne. Um, he jumped from I think it was Fantastic Four at the time. He jumped from Fantastic Four to uh, like the Incredible Hulk. And then he started doing Superman after that. And I recognized the style. You know, it started to become like a fingerprint. And I realized that this is one guy doing all these books. His name is John Byrne. Turns out he was a whatever. He's a John Byrne. But <laughs> that sort of let me know that at least this was an option. Yeah. where I never would have considered it necessarily beforehand. Yeah, because you didn't have, did you have other people in your life that kind of, that made art for a living or made art for, did you have people that you could look toward, you know, personally? Mm -hmm. yeah. those kind of things? No, no. I, I don't even remember anybody being artistic, mm -hmm. like painting or quilt making or uh, nothing. There was a vacuum wow. of that sort of, creativity so it was me and bob ross and some guy on saturday afternoons on pbs who would like tell you stories while i did charcoal drawings and yeah that was do you awesome. remember that yeah absolutely uh gpb licensed some crazy thing <laughs> yeah they used to have cr crazy crap on there like, like that all the time man yeah so, so just, john was your gateway so you're like well, so yeah. here's a guy this is a real name this is somebody out there who's drawing all these cool books and is able to not even do one thing. And, you know, for John, not being a creator on, I mean, obviously he created auxiliary characters and, and themes and, and storylines mm -hmm. and helped contribute to those, but he wasn't there at the beginning. You know, he was someone who came on during the, the run of these characters, as I'm sure you right. need to learn about that. And you're like, okay, well, he got a job drawing the Hulk. Rad. Yeah. Uh, and, when you when you made that connection and you started to think, well, that's 
that's maybe that's what I want to start to pursue too. What were those steps for you? Where did you kind of start to plot out a bridge from drawing for fun to drawing for profit? Um, well, I stuck with art through high school and, and I got better and better and better. And I got good enough at just drawing that I got an illustration scholarship at a college in Waleska, Georgia called Reinhardt College. And I went there for a little while and that was sort of my first um, upper level art education stuff. Huge leaps. I mean, I, I highly recommend at least the first couple of years of art school. You don't necessarily need the degree. Nobody cares. but some of that early base education you definitely definitely have to get and then i moved to dalton georgia uh, for a girl and the, capital of the world yep the capital of the world that's right <laughs> where our illustrious leader was just two days ago can you believe that? We're, we're talking about comic books josh <laughs> oh sorry i'm sorry i'm so sorry so uh yeah moved to dalton and um they had two or three comic book shops in Dalton. Yeah. And at this point, I've got a little bit of money and this is what I spent it on. So I'm bouncing from shop to shop. And one day I see a sign on the door, uh, learn how to draw comics like the professionals, you know, all that kind of stuff. And it was a, there was a pro in town named Robert Brown who was working for Marvel at the time. He was doing work out of the Spider-Man office. And I went and saw him and joined his class. And, uh, I just ended up like hanging out at his house constantly so much so that I moved in to a brand new set of condos, like right behind him. And, uh, he's the one that helped me get my first professional job at Marvel. Wow. It was, it was a job he couldn't finish on a um, Spider-Man holiday special. It's like six pages. Um, Spider-Man or the spider clone, spider clone and the fan and the human torch are having coffee. I actually have a page of it on the wall over here are having coffee on top of the uh, statue of Liberty at Christmas time, talking about like how messed up their lives are. As you do. <laughs> yeah, as you do. Well, that's, I, I hear that from a lot of creators. It really, there's a, a networking aspect to getting into this world. Um, it is so, so networking. It really genuinely is like you think of that being in Dalton, <clears throat> like that's not a place that's not New York City. That's not no. a, a big hub, a creative hub where you expect to find a, a group of people. That was really just a case of you having your eyes open and paying attention. And one of the great things about this job, I would think, is that at this point, you really can live anywhere and do the work. And so, even back then when we were doing it on paper, I mean, now it's all digital workflow, yeah. but. Back then, they just gave you a they gave you a FedEx number and said every time you're ready to send us pages, just slot them in a box and ship them to New York. You know. Wow. So you made that connection. He got you in at, did doing that original work at, at Marvel. And then what was your next? Was it the sort of thing that once some editors or you know once you kind of got on the docket of slate of these are some people that we can reach out to who are professional and do good work that you're kind of, you've got some portfolio pages and a, and a list there, or is it? Yeah, I picked up a little bit more work um, through Marvel, through Ralph Macchio was the Marvel editor at the time. And I started doing um, some smaller fill-in-y kind of stuff for him. 
and uh, then got a couple of mini series of my own. I oh, I did. Um, I finished out a series called The Green Goblin. I did the last three issues of a of a series that Scott McDaniel had been drawing before, and uh, just kind of put it to bed. It was already canceled when I got it, but I'm not going to complain because I only had one credit to my name at that time. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> and did some Venom work, and then yeah. with those like few things. I just started, I got, I got the phone numbers of the editors at Marvel and DC because I already knew I had the Marvel list. Yeah. So I got the, um, I can't remember who I got the DC list off of. And I just started calling them. Hey, my name is Josh and I work on Venom and I was coming to New York and wanted to swing by and show you my stuff. And they're like, let me put you on the schedule. That's all to, it took. Once you had published pages or, you know, you were a known entity that definitely made the difference and at that point that was still like that's in person you're showing up you're making the rounds uh, those are great trips i really yeah. i miss those trips <laughs> well now i i talk to so many students and teachers uh here at scad who are are working towards this and so now there's you know of course your digital portfolio and your social media presence and, and all of these different things can really have a, an exponential effect on someone who is new to this, you know, who, if you are yeah. able to go ahead and cultivate a social media following, you have perhaps a built-in audience of people who want to buy your book. Or if you yeah. have all of this work online, uh, presumably, you know, you've got a portfolio of things ready to go that you're comfortable publishing and, and all of that. Do you feel like <clears throat> you getting in before that kind of became more of the norm? How do you feel like that, maybe has changed the playing field or, you know, open things up or just change the dynamic of how people can make those connections now. Is it anything? Really I think different? it's, yeah, I think it's really democratized um, the work and we have become sort of a, a pure meritocracy. It's the reason that I believe comic book art is uh, the best that it's ever been, you know, top to bottom. Like you always had talent, you know, there were always the guys that you would never forget, but even on the worst books now, the artwork is pretty good. Yeah. Even on the absolute, I mean, even on the dingiest, no nothing. <laughs> no, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't know who to name because everybody's so good. Yeah. You flip through even the even the section of uh, previews, the our catalog that we flip through religiously every month. Um, even the books that are like small published stuff, they have these beautiful print painted covers and just wonderful interior artwork. We're at a high watermark. I 100% agree with you. I am shocked, uh, honestly, every time I pull open up a, a new box of books and I start, you know, because we have a nice diverse base of customers here, we order from a lot of the smaller publishers and we order heavy on some of them, depending on who the writer and artist is and, and what we know about other other books those editors have championed. And some of these publishers that, you know, honestly, before I opened, I never thought we would carry their books. Just I knew who they were, but uh, it wouldn't make sense to rack copies. They're spending money on the, the nice books, nice paper, nice stock. And then the quality of the writing and the art is just as good as anything else. And in some cases, just amazingly beautiful. I, I agree mm -hmm. with you hundred percent. And I'm amazed uh, by all the new talent that just keeps coming out where we've got so many great people that we've kind of become accustomed to, but I love that so many people are getting a chance and getting out there and kind of pushing everybody a little bit too. Mm -hmm. uh, do you see it that really when does. you artists, um, 
do you, I, I think a lot of us have kind of, uh, we compare ourselves to everybody else and that's healthy and it's not healthy when we do it <laughs> perhaps to extremes. But how yeah. do you, how do you deal with that? When you see somebody else's work, maybe that's kind of in the, the same genre or style as you, uh, you know, and, and how do you deal with that? Is that something you think about or do you just kind of push it away and keep your head down? No, it's something I deal with a lot. Um, <clears throat> I mean, you, you have a tendency to compare yourself to the people who you think are the best. And then I, you're, you're really killing yourself there because I'm comparing myself to guys who are, you know, selling like 180,000 issues, copies an issue. And I need to be thinking more like the, the 10 and 12,000 copies an issue. But um, I don't know. I try, I try to learn from them. I do whatever I can to get, like for instance, there is a uh, in two thousand and I don't know twelve or thirteen Panini Comics, a company out of Italy, created black and white versions of sort of the big Marvel crossovers of the time, like uh, Fear itself, um, House of M, and Civil War, and they're ten by fourteen. They're giant digest size books. So when you open it up, it's practically full-size black and white art of the original inks. Not the original pencils, but the original inks. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'll just pour over and like, why does this work? What is working here? There's so much to learn from that kind of stuff. So that's pretty much how I approach that. That is such a, a healthy way to do it. I, I've talked to people, especially maybe younger artists who kind of get paralyzed when they see somebody who's doing something that they want to do and get really intimidated or get down on themselves. But that idea of that you're constantly learning, that you see a, a spread or a layout or how a, a point of perspective works or, you know, and you're just like, oh, oh, you can do that. Okay, cool. <laughs> like that's yeah. something that, I wouldn't have thought of and but maybe put that in the back pocket for later <laughs> because yeah. I bet at some point you can. I have the technical knowledge. Like I can look at a piece of artwork now and I know exactly how it was made. But it's the it's that that uh, space between technicality and artistry and the the selection of what did they draw and what did they not draw. You know, that's that's the kind of stuff I'm looking for like real esoteric hard to define sort of stuff for young artists i always say you know it doesn't have to be incredibly elaborate look at chris amney look at what he can do with four lines you know so you don't have to kill yourself to get to be great just do the work and keep learning you know yeah. i think that's that's you know practice and when you are only drawing for yourself that's when you get to really dig deep right and that's where you mm -hmm. can that's where you can mess up and nobody knows but you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I met you, uh, gosh, I, we were talking about this earlier and I'm like, how many decades ago? That seems so ridiculous. And it's not actually that long, but uh, like a it lot of- It was last century, but it's close. Yeah. yeah right. Uh, you do commercial illustration work and that sort of thing as well. I own a web development company. We had a chance to work together on a client and uh, we were getting coffee down at uh, one of the little, I think it was probably Gallery Espresso uh, here in, in Savannah and yeah. chatting. And uh, and you just so offhandedly, you know, mention that, oh, you know, I've got, you know, some DC work and some, you know, I'm like, you know, you just don't know who anybody is, you know, until you start sitting down and you're like, 
oh my God, nice. I'm such a nerd. And you were so professional about it. And all I wanted to do was like ask you JLA questions and like just be a real, <laughs> you know, I wanted to just explode on it. So I'm very grateful for you for being so professional and uh, setting that tone so I didn't just gush all over the place. I'll answer any questions you got. I don't know if I can. I mean, I did I did that one JLA series. Is that the one, the the one with the monsters? Scary it, monsters, yeah. Monsters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we have the miniseries right over there. So, oh, cool. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, I was going to grab it today, but I got, got a press for time. Uh, so you're doing all this work for the publishers. You have a chance to work on, work with, uh, with a couple of different creators on a book for Black Mask called We Can Never Go Home. How did this book come about? How did you get with this team and and how did this genesis start? I had left comics in 2000, the early 2000s comics that it kind of imploded a little bit. I guess Marvel was facing like its 15th bankruptcy or whatever. And um, there wasn't as, uh, there wasn't as uh, uh, healthy uh, an independent publishing line as there is now you know image was just still the same five guys doing their books and um there was no boom there was no dynamite there was no idw there might have been an idw at the time but no no though i guess there wasn't dark horse that was about it and there just was no work to be had so i switched over to commercial illustration i missed it so much that i decided i gotta come back to this and but i'm only going to do like in, you know, small stuff. I hooked up with a company called Comics Alliance, which has a, it was like an online community for comics. Uh, put, put some sample pages out that I had done, like just kind of fooling around. And I think Matt Rosenberg found me that way and said, well, do you want to do five issues? We got, you know, we have funding. Rad. So that's just another case of, of putting yourself out there. And that's a, a digital marketing, you know, a digital networking piece there. So you. Yeah, I didn't think anything worked. was going to come of it. You know, it was a uh, it was like a uh, idea sharing place. Yeah. Um, uh, there were there were a lot of people there with like different levels of talent. There was a very early beginners and I had already done pro stuff, but I've been out for. I mean, over 10 years at that point. And, yeah. I just put it up and, you know, give me some criticism. Tell me what's wrong. Tell me what's right. What do I need to change? And and I got some back and, but I also got work out of it. Yeah. How that's cool. I had no, I thought this was me another one of those. Oh, well this guy, you know, this editor, you know, kind of, you know, knew some things and put us together, but that was a, a yeah. real kind of personal connection. And was this the, the first book that you worked on professionally that was not already an established property? In one way or yes. Another? Yeah. yeah. This is the first book that I actually have a little piece of. Um, mm -hmm. The first book that I helped define. Nobody had ever drawn these characters until I drew them. I, well, is that true? I think I think they might have started with another artist, and it didn't work out. Back work, yeah, for it maybe. Yeah, early stage work. I I love this because I mean it is a it's a really it's a great story, but I love the art in the book. And I love the way that the panels are put together. The color is great in this. I mean, it has some really nice palettes as you kind of go through the book as well. Uh -huh. One of my, I, I love the 
the dress up page where she's yeah. putting on all of the costumes and complaining about how this the female superhero costumes are bathing suit, oh, bathing oh, suit, oh, bathing suit. suit. Yeah, bathing suit with the belt. <laughs> yeah. That's a classic. That's a classic. It's great. It is great. And what was that relationship with working with Matthew like? How is he in terms of? I know lots of different writers have different styles in terms of the scripts they deliver or the outlines that they provide. Uh, what is his collaboration style? He 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 doesn't really choose like um, this was a this was a co-writing he was doing with a guy named Patrick uh, Kindlin. Yeah. <clears throat> they didn't really choose. I guess sort of, uh, you know, it wasn't so specific camera angles, that kind of thing, you know, uh, Duncan and Maddie do this, then they go here, then they do something, something, then she accidentally punches somebody. It's, it was that kind of storytelling. And then from there on, I have to sort of pace and, and set design. And, and so there was really a lot left for me to do, which is how I would prefer it. Honestly, Were all the dialogue beats there in the script as well as in addition to the setting and the general movement. Yes. I think they, I think a lot of the dialogue was already there. Maybe not for some of the panels like, um, <clears throat> Oh no, I guess it would have been, I've got the, I've still got the old scripts. So I wanted to look them up. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's a couple of pages in there where it's like 18 panels, 25 panels. And it's a, just a back and forth rapid. Yeah. Amy Sherman Palladino kind of, kind of conversation. And uh, the the planning that went into those, man. Oh, Lord, God. Well, the you you mentioned specifically pacing, and that's something I've really come to appreciate in more and more books. How much control the artist ultimately has, and how the reader absorbs the story. And you know, from mm -hmm. what you're saying in that script, and. Uh, I was reading some things with uh, Mitch Garads working with Tom King about some of the things that he would get and some of the blanks he would have to fill in and how he would choose to make some beats longer and to let them linger a little bit more when it wasn't implied in the script necessarily that it should yeah. be that. Um, and how working with these structures, because ultimately as a comic artist, you're, you're dealing with panels. You can control how the panels go. You can put splashes here and splashes there, but you're dealing with this sequence of events and how big or small or layered or how they break the pain or how they interact with each other and the all important what is on the other side of this page that so many people i think just in their minds don't think about the storytelling that that in and of itself is and as someone as a an old school you know comics fan knows i mean there's nothing better than flipping a page and then having your mind blown by that next big thing that you didn't you literally didn't see coming so mm -hmm. yeah the pacing on this book so good i highly recommend it if you guys haven't picked it up this is really great uh, as Josh still said, only 10 bucks you know, only 10 bucks how are they getting away with that and uh, as josh said this is a creator owned piece he's got a piece of it support this man pick up this book and at some point Maybe we'll get more. We'll get more of this story. It, we absolutely will. So, all right, little tease for that. So <laughs> you've done your, you've done creator own work. You've worked on things like Star Trek and you've worked on, like mm -hmm. you said, JLA and Venom and all kinds of high profile projects. Out of those projects, out of the licensed, established world building characters that you've worked with, which which single, if there was a character that you really enjoyed drawing or exploring or a toy box that you got to play with, what's the, the one oh, yeah. out of those that you thought really, you know, was the one that got you 
really excited and you think was able you were able to turn into some work you're really proud of the um the first star trek book i did was an like an elseworlds book it was an alternate reality book written by donny cates called uh, star trek deviations and in it it uh asked the question what would have happened if earth had been discovered by um romulans rather than vulcans so in our story earth is now a penal colony humans are the only prisoners on it you know right. uh, it's just a giant planet of indentured servants and the next generation crew have somehow found each other and are um trying to they're trying to affect the rescue of some important like um figurehead that they need to yeah to get a hold of and man i had never done likenesses before so i that that's always a pain but the action was great and the story was fantastic and it just kept moving forward all the time i loved it i loved did every you, minute uh, of it were you a star trek fan before that did you watch the next generation oh sure oh yeah absolutely on and, I can remember sitting in my grandparents' um, living room with a lot of my family. I don't know why they were all there. I mean, it must have, it must have been like a Christmas thing when it came on or New Year's or something. And uh, we all just sat down and watched like the first episode of Star Trek The Next Generation when it came on. Yeah, that's that's a cool, that's cool. I'm pretty sure I watched that by myself. But <laughs> so you've got uh, history doing uh, likenesses professionally. What's it mm -hmm. like drawing cat people? Uh, <laughs> I'm just so Josh's new project is Avatar the Next Shadow. This is a, a mini series from Dark Horse that is expanding on the James Cameron Avatar movie universe. So, with this, if you uh, recall uh, the movie, we have the Navi. They are the indigenous people on this on a on a remote planet. Uh, humans on Earth have developed. Uh, interstellar transportation and have gone to uh, use this land for its natural resources. Um, hilarity ensues. <laughs> I'm just recapping. Hilarity and hygiene kicks off. <laughs> uh, but this is a, a, was a huge film, uh, was a, a blockbuster movie, did huge bank. Um, it's still the highest grossing film of all time. Uh, well, no, probably not after like Infinity War, right? Yeah, for so long and is up there. Had a decade. And, and a movie that's been that cost a lot of money and a lot of time to make, and that is now in the development stages of expanding that film franchise film into a franchise with with sequels that are coming out. And this is kind of our first taste of Avatar content in quite a while uh, for mm -hmm. people who are are fans of of this. So. When this project came up, how did you come on board to to join the book? My agent. Hmm. I have an agent now. Good. Yeah, my Good. agent got this for me. Awesome. Um, I, I guess it was probably a pretty easy sell. I'd already done Star Trek stuff. I'd already done a lot of licensed work. Yep. And um, yeah, so, so I, I put him to it. And he finally <laughs> you, uh, troubled this out like for me. I'm guessing like the rest of the world, you had seen the movie or you at least were familiar <clears throat> with the universe that you'd be working with. And so I saw it a couple of times in the theaters because yeah. it was so amazing, you know, like technically brilliant and beautiful and 
uh, it was the first time like when's the last time we saw a 3d movie in the movie theaters last time we went to a movie theater Josh. oh really <laughs> 2017 yeah 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 before <laughs> before everybody started getting sick i don't know but yeah no that was it was really an event when that came out and that was something where yeah yeah i don't recall the last time i i agreed to pay for a 3d movie in the theater and i love going to the theater but i just it has to be something really special for me to fork over those extra two or three dollars it was the only way to see it that's why i saw it twice because i knew the second it came on you know we've all got 60 inch televisions in our living room now yeah. but there is no way that movie is going to look the same on a 60 inch television as it does on a 72 foot wide screen with those glasses on there's no chance it's going to be the same so i and tried I to always, absorb them as much of as i could at the time you know i always kind of forget about that being a james cameron movie in a really weird way because his name is obviously attached really tight but you think about the movies or the the intellectual property the world building that man has been a part of throughout his career and you know, so much gets attached to something like Titanic, another one of those big, huge movies and not a genre movie that uh, necessarily a lot of us uh, would be drawn to. But you have to think about Terminator and I can just like the the breadth of, of creativity this guy's had. What has has he had any kind of from your, you know, from your vantage point? Does he work kind of a, in any way as a, a story guide or is there a story development team that works with Jim to form these stories that we're hearing now? I, right next I know that the writer, um, Jeremy Barlow, had to, everything has to go through Lightstorm, which is his production company. Right. And that's fun. I read, and I don't know if this is true, and I'm sure it's not going to pan out, but I read that the stuff, all the comics are supposed to be canonical to the story. They're just filling in gaps between movies. Because right. I guess you're never going to be able to make a television show out of this. So, um, which now all of a sudden I'm like, why didn't they do like an animated series? Like, you know, you the Navi Adventures, the Wacky Little far, Adventures of the Navi. <laughs> the right. lawsuits all over the place but no 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 yeah they, they could call it something different for sure and uh but yeah animation would totally work and honestly the way some networks are throwing money at stuff it could just be oh this is just the humans we're not going to show all the other stuff this is just the humans and their work pods <laughs> we'll just mm -hmm. build a couple of sets and save all that money but yeah i mean there's obviously anything that's that big that has a, a disney theme park edition dedicated to it there are fans of this franchise That's crazy so yeah you talked about the the writer having to get everything approved and i've talked to a lot of other artists who have had to do likenesses have had to do these um licensed properties that are real people or are you know my little pony horses or transformer mm -hmm. robots or or whatever uh and you have to meet these kind of, you have to be on model or, you know, there are different kind of things to look at. What was yeah. that process for you like as an artist? Did you have notes of things that you could and couldn't do? Or did every page have to have some review process? Every page has a review process. Everything yeah. has to go first to um, Dark Horse Editorial. They have their pass on changes and their changes are usually like the same kind of changes you would get from any story editor uh you know you're not putting enough emphasis on this uh this guy needs to turn around so that the dialogue works kind of a thing um you need to flip this panel 
so that it, it reads better because we want to have her talking before him. That's that's like normal stuff. I'm totally used to that. But then it gets shot up to um, Lightstorm, and yeah. you know they come back and it's like uh, um, Tuesday doesn't look like Tuesday. Okay, what does that mean? <laughs> okay, <laughs> which one's to say again? <laughs> the names have been killing me. Uh, the names have been killing me because I'll <laughs> in my brain I'll be like, okay, that's that guy, and I'll and I've got little model sheets for each one, and but I don't the names and the models aren't necessarily clicking in my brain as one thing. So it's gotta be, I mean, uh, they're obviously they're humanoid. They have eyes and nose and mouth. You have some, some general uh, touchstones to go through, but then you have some things that are exaggerated or, you know, flattened or. Right. Yeah. And I have to say they have not been as bad as the paramount people were for Star Trek. I mean, it, if you got Star Trek wrong, Jonathan freaks might show up at your house and kick you in the stones. Cause he seems from like what. <laughs> From what I understand, I did character sheets for that Star Trek Deviations book I was telling you about. And those character sheets got shot to each individual actor's representatives to get okayed on their look because we had changed their look from the movie because it was a different timeline, right? And each one of them had to sign off on the look. And if it, originally I had uh, Jonathan Frakes had like a big long Viking beard and his head was like shaved on the sides. I mean, he looked like a total tough guy. He was a real rough and tumble dude. Yeah. And they're like, you got to pull that back a little bit. <laughs> Frakes wasn't down to be the uh, barbarian type. I'm, I'm sure he never saw it. I'm sure it was one of his representatives. Like this doesn't look enough like the Jonathan that we know. Oh, so um, so Lightstorm <laughs> hasn't been nearly so tough as that kind of stuff. Only with the humans. And I guess it's because the Navi have those, you know, they do. They look like cats. Yeah. You're, you're not used to seeing that head shape and those ears are mounted up here rather than here. Right. And they have these, I have, drew, I have drawn so many braids. <laughs> they all have crazy long hair. Well, I was going to ask you, like every project has its like, <laughs> challenges, you know, it's specific things that maybe are more cumbersome than you might think about Right. But for these guys. Is it that, is it the hair? It's is that the hair? hair. It's the braids. They have to fall the right way. And they have to, I mean, this is not light storm. This is me. This yeah. is like my no, own personal yeah. critique saying this, you know, you got to get these braids, right? I'm drawing braids forever for days. And I finally created a little shorthand to be able to just and knock them out real fast. But it took a couple of issues to kind of get there. Are you um, on this series? Are you working all digital? Are you working print and scanning and doing? A uh, yeah, I haven't done I haven't done a printed page of comics since two thousand and three. Everything I've done in this new version has all been digital, and it stinks that I don't have any artwork to you know to to well to sell and to share <laughs> yeah, and to put on your wall remember that thing uh, you did and then, yeah i mean there are guys they won't go digital because they double their income selling their artwork off um and and i don't blame them one bit if you can get it man go get it yeah for sure no and i think <laughs> i've seen uh more and more people who are doing a hybrid too that are doing some amount of of penciling on paper so there is some sort of an artifact and then kind of scanning that and cleaning you know cleaning it up digitally and being able to rework something oh. move some things around i know i'm just kind of leaving, right? hmm. leaving a little trail here for you if you ever want to make some of that navi money <laughs> yeah. to, to buy some all right what was the metal that they had to have 
not unobtainium unobtainium not infantanium which i wanted to call it unobtainium that's right i like infantanium better that's nice well uh, feel free to pitch that at your next <laughs> yeah so my, they're definitely gonna listen to me that jackass is real low <laughs> so real low um I had a question uh, come in from Drew. Drew runs the website avatarsequels.com. So he obviously has a vested interest in what you're doing with this uh, project. He wanted sorry, to I don't have any had... artwork for you, Drew. What's that? I'm sorry, I don't have any artwork for you, Drew. There's nothing. <laughs> exactly. He wanted to know, uh, we talked about something that was a challenge, but if you had a favorite animal or character uh, to draw in this series, and one thing that I was really, uh, you know, kind of struck by again i kind of forget about some of this stuff it's it's been a minute but how how lush and how detailed some of these this the environments on this planet are and how unique uh some of the the species are that you see like some of these horse-like things and of course the big birds and um, somebody's yeah, got the mouths, over, yeah. the birds, over the coals about this but but what what are the is there a certain touchstone in this series that you're like oh I like drawing this. This is rad. It's the Navi themselves. Mm. They have very long, slender, muscular bodies, even though they're very skinny. And yeah. um, their faces are sort of pulled out and, and Lionel, you know, uh, Leonine, I think is the phrase. I like that word. Yeah. <laughs> I like their... Um, and in most of the scenes with humans they're always towering over them yes. and sort of like impossibly tall um so that's that's been fun to draw getting yeah. the scale of the two characters together you know it's like ones the humans are about two-thirds the size of navi i think they keep referencing yeah and you do have a couple of nice wider shots that show small groups talking and you know of humans and navi and you do really see that difference you know if for every scene in this series if it's not one, it's 50 of them because they do not, they hang out together. There's no social distancing in this group. There's well, always 50 of them. Well, I've pulled up one of the panels in particular because I was uh, really interested in your approach to showing expression, facial expression uh, with the Navi, because like you said, I mean, they're humanoid, but they're also cat-like and I'm going to not try to pronounce your fancy lion like word, but they, you, you've got some of the same tools to play with, but you also have some different ones. Was there yeah. a, what was your approach to like showing them being kind of concerned or worried or, you know, being angry or, you know, what yeah, it's tough. moves? They don't have eyebrows. Yeah. And you, you wouldn't, un, you wouldn't believe how hard it is to do expressions like subtle expressions without eyebrows because yeah. we use them constantly. Yeah. Uh, every expression comes with some eyebrow combination, you know, like together and down is angry, together and up is worried, um, uh, up and separated is happy, surprised, straight up is startled, <laughs> right? So, you were able to do, uh, they have a pronounced brow, but not eyebrows. So they have- You can do a few wrinkles, uh, yeah, bone, and the size know, of the eyes, they're yeah. wide in the eyes maybe and but it, you really had to do a lot with the eyes and the mouth because the nose is this huge, like a, I don't know, like half a banana coming yeah. down their face. And um, there's not really much. They don't, they can't crinkle them that much because there's just not enough sort of stuff to crinkle. 
Yeah. What a what an interesting set of problems, you know. Like <laughs> yeah. as a comic book artist, do you get these kinds of things dropped in your lap? You know, that's true. Yeah, There's that's true. Aliens and uh, yeah, they can't move their nose, or you know, like it's just, <laughs> just something you don't need to worry about. So yeah, fill in the blanks. You'll you'll figure it out. <laughs> I want you to draw this giant blue alien character, but I want him to have kind of a sassy jaunt. You know, yeah. So. Yeah, yeah, those are the kind <laughs> of moves you get on this, right? <laughs> Nothing but so. sassy jaunts. How do you do disgusted without eyebrows? It's got to be a lot of lip curl. Yeah, right. And uh, yeah. like one eye's open more than the other one, and their head's kind of back like this. Like, yeah, I don't want to touch some that. Of the things with the camera angle too, because there is obviously if we're if we're thinking about it that we're in the human spot or not, but there is some looking up and some looking down at those faces and just that sort of thing. Seeing a head cast down you know causes some certain we fill in the blanks with that a little bit mm -hmm. but I, I thought that the two the two things that really stood out for me in terms of the challenges here were like just kind of all right there's a vast organic mass of planet but then i also have to draw rigid machinery and i also have to draw things that aren't humans but are kind of humans <laughs> they often that, i got lucky there yeah I'm, I'm glad they didn't have like hind legs you know like they're not centaurs or something that would be terrible. Well, those horse things are kind of crazy. They're kind of like a Clydesdale mixed with what, like a Brachiosaurus? How would you describe those horse things? They've got these weird, long anteater noses anteater. that I didn't even remember. I remembered the horse the horse creatures, but it wasn't until I started looking at the photographs and the reference material that I was like, that is so crazy. They've got multiple eyes down their head. Yeah, it's a mess, man. That's a mess. I didn't have to do a lot of character work, uh, like a lot of creature work, though. Um, the mounts, which I'm blanking on what their names are right now. Um, there was some of that, and uh, but there was, um, and the first page of the first issue, you see a, a winged creature. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But after that, it's clear mostly just Navi and humans. Yeah crazy. Well, this is a mini series that's out now from Dark Horse. You can pick up copies at a comic shop near you or you can just buy them from us. Doesn't matter where you are. The cool thing about ours is check that out. That that uh, copper bronzy uh, Sharpie right over there. Josh was kind enough to stop by on his holiday break to I make it sound like you're a school kid. Your holiday break, you're just out and about popping around. He made it by our shop here in Savannah and signed copies for us. Of course, this is a limited number of copies that we have. Uh, we are selling these just at cover price. So $3.99, if you buy a copy of Avatar The Next Shadow number one at neighborhoodcomics.com, it comes signed and uh, will be shipped right out to you wherever you are. So thank you very much to that uh, for doing that, Josh. Josh has been a great supporter and friend to the shop. And I am very grateful for all the super kind things that he has done to help promote us, especially during this last brutal year with uh, things being anything but normal uh, all around the world uh, and even here at your, your neighborhood comic shop. So thank you very much, Josh. You are a prince, you're a gentleman, you're a fantastic artist. And if people don't know, I'll just, I'll say that you're my friend. <laughs> oh, I appreciate it, man. Josh, thanks so much. Take care. Stay well. Uh, try to keep your sanity. And uh, next time you got something out, man, of course, reach out. Let us know. We'll be pounding on your door to do this again. And hey, maybe we'll just do it for uh, for giggles. Um, Later this uh, year, original graphic novel, 200 and some odd pages of it coming out. There you go. There you yeah. go. 
we're going to talk about that for sure. But before I let you go, is there a, a book that you think that's not yours, a book that you haven't worked on that you uh, think people should should pick up and give a shot? Is there anything out there you want to give a quick shout out for folks to? Uh, something that's not mine. Let's see. What am I reading right now? Uh, Wonder Woman Dead Earth. Was it very pretty? So pretty. I just got done reading, um, or I'm like halfway through um, Fire, oh, the Chris Samney book. What is it called? Firepower. Firepower. So pretty. His storytelling is just the best. It's the best. Absolutely. And the first trade just came out today. So if you're somebody who doesn't always pick up the singlet with the second trade, the first was a prelude and the first proper. That's the one I'm reading is the prelude then. Yeah, I can't wait to pick up the first uh, like real story. And I'm not, that's a genre that I don't really like have an affinity for that kind of martial arts kind of, you know, thing. But gosh, it is such a great story and it's beautifully drawn and executed. Mm -hmm. So. So that's a great one. I'll let you go on that high note. Thanks again, Josh. Take care. Stay well. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks a lot. Take care. That is it for this issue. This issue. This episode. Oh, I can call it an issue. That sounds fun. I'll do that. That is it for this issue of uh, the Neighborhood Comics Convo. I want to give a big thanks to Josh Hood for joining us. You can follow Josh on all of those awesome social media platforms. We're going to include a link here in the show notes if you want to go out and check him out on Twitter, on Instagram. He's a great follow everywhere. Be sure to check out Avatar, The Next Shadow from Dark Horse. Josh is the artist on that. And I cannot recommend highly enough, We Can Never Go Home. That's a trade paperback available right now at a comic shop near you from Black Mask. I want to thank you all for watching. Thanks for supporting the shop. You can check out the show notes down below for links to purchase Josh's books that we talked about here in the show. And again, our copies of Avatar, The Next Shadow Number One, all come signed. Thanks for tuning in. We appreciate your support. And uh, stop by your comic shop. I don't have an outro for this. So take care. Stay well. Stay healthy.